Hi ho, hi ho. This is Land Schooler, the Savvy Navigator, and you're listening to the Import Export Made Easy podcast. This podcast is for you if you're considering or currently involved in the navigating of the minefield of international trade. That is the importing, the exporting, or the global trading of physical goods and products between countries. Preview. In this episode, I'm going to share what might be one of the most significant opportunities right now for small business importers and exporters for the marketing, sales, and distribution of your products worldwide. And it's summarized in three words. What are these words? You'll have to wait and see. Do I hear you saying that's unfair? You're teasing me, Lance? Okay, I'll give you a clue. I will give you the first letter of each of the three words. Ready? Listen carefully. F-B-A. That's it. F-B-A. Have you figured it out? (laughs) Whether you have or you haven't, you will want to listen to these details because it is good news. Episode 2. Import-Export. The good, the bad and the ugly. A reality check. In the face-to-face courses I ran at universities and community colleges since the early 1990s, I would ask this question early on in the course. I have good news and bad news. What would you like first, the good news or the bad news? Some would say the good news and others the bad news. I myself prefer to hear the worst case scenario. Why? Because it all gets better from there. Once you know what the worst case is, it all is better from there. However, I've decided to go with the good news first today, then the bad, and then the ugly. But don't despair, before I sign off this episode, I'll show you how you can avoid, as much as possible, the bad and the ugly. So firstly, the good news. In my opinion, right now, is the best time in history to be involved in international trade, importing, exporting, and the global trading of commodities, goods, and products. Because in transport, we have greater speed and capacity. In communications, they're fast and available on mobile devices wherever you happen to be, subject, of course, to access to the internet. Finding suppliers and customers is much, much easier with the internet and social media. We have a reasonably stable world, both politically and economically. Yes, I know there's things going wrong in parts of the world, but overall, compared to last century, things are not too bad globally. Technology and production capacities have increased dramatically. So for me, having been born just after the Second World War in 1949, I have seen and experienced amazing changes. And in these early years of the 21st century, the changes have been, in many ways, rapid and exponential. So in preparing for this episode of the Import-Export Made Easy podcast, I've spent some time retracing my own experiences and then going back through history to imagine what things were like thousands of years ago and what have been the developments and progress in trade and transport up to the present, right now. So join me now on a quick time-travelling journey. 
international trade, importing and exporting, and the global trading and transporting of commodities, goods and products between countries goes back thousands of years, if not many thousands of years. Have you heard of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Best known for the musical and the film with lyrics by Tim Rice and the music by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Now it's based on a story from Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew and the Christian Bibles. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, becomes human cargo, or what we would call today a victim of human trafficking. If you're not familiar with the storyline, it goes like this. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. Why? Because he was their father's favourite. Jacob the father had given a gift to Joseph, and only to Joseph, of a spectacular multicoloured coat. It would have been worth a lot of money. Not only that, Joseph also had dreams. And he told his brothers that in these dreams, God clearly showed him that his brothers would bow down to him in the future. This infuriated his brothers. They were really miffed. They were more than angry. Sometime later, his brothers are grazing flocks of sheep quite some distance from home, and Jacob sends Joseph to see how things are going, and also loads Joseph up with food and supplies for his brother. Not him himself, but a donkey or something like that. Now, when his brothers see him coming in the distance, they plot to kill him. When he arrives, they toss him into an empty system while arguing about whether or not to kill him. Now, as they're sitting down to have their meal, they look up and what do they see in the distance? They see a caravan. No, not a camper van or a motorized holiday home with all the mod cons, including an area for satellite Wi-Fi. And no, Joseph and his brothers were not sitting in a trailer park or a caravan park. No, this was possibly seven to 9,000 years ago. That's how long ago this was. This was a different sort of caravan. A caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead in the Middle East. And it was a caravan of camels, often called ships of the desert. Now here is the interesting bit, and I quote from the Bible, their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So this is international trade and transport. So Judah, one of Joseph's brothers says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And his brothers agree. So when the Ishmaelite merchants come by, his brothers pull Joseph up out of the system. And what do they do? They sell him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. This is transaction number one. Now we don't have a transcription of the negotiation, the haggling if you will, over the price to be paid for Joseph. And it can be assumed that the multicolour coat was not thrown in as an upsell bonus. One of those, but wait, there's more pictures that we hear on TV so often these days. The coat was taken back to their father, Jacob. Now, look, I'm digressing here. Let's get back to importing, exporting, international trade and transport. So how much was 20 shekels of silver worth in early biblical time? Now there's much conjecture over this, but it could be a few hundred dollars, it could be a thousand dollars or so. Now Joseph is reportedly a very handsome man, so maybe they could get a better price for him. So let's not quibble, let's move on. 
Then the Ishmaelite merchants took Joseph to Egypt. When they got there, they sell Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, and he's the captain of the guard. This is transaction number two. So the international transaction was brokered in Canaan, modern day Israel, and the cargo, Joseph, was transported to Egypt by the merchants, who then onsold Joseph to Potiphar. Also, let's not forget that this was a side transaction by the merchants. Their prime manifested cargo on the back of the camels was spices, balm and myrrh. So let's leave the story of Joseph, the spices and the balm and the myrrh. And now let's consider the bigger picture of trade and transport from ancient times through history right up until the present time. And I'll do this with some quick snapshots. So now let's move from Egypt to the Royal Road, which was an important trade route in the 5th century BC and began in Asia Minor on the Aegean coast of Lydia, about 60 miles east of Izmir in present-day Turkey, and ended near Susa, the ancient city of the Persian Empire, now Iran one of the most important cities in the ancient Near East. Now the Royal Road helped Persia increase a long distance trade, which reached its peak during the time of Alexander the Great. Let's now consider the trade routes, both land and sea, of the Phoenicians. They were an ancient Semitic civilization that originated in the Eastern Mediterranean and west of the Fertile Crescent. And it included the coastal areas of today's Lebanon, Northern Israel, and southern Syria. Its colonies later reached the western Mediterranean, most notably Carthage, what is in modern-day Tunisia, and as far as the Atlantic Ocean. The civilization spread across the Mediterranean between 1500 BC and 300 BC. Now the Phoenicians were among the greatest traders of their time and owed much of their prosperity to trade. At first, they traded mainly with the Greeks, trading wood, slaves, glass, and powdered Tyrrhenian purple. Now, Tyrrhenian purple was a violet purple dye used by the Greek elite to color garments. In fact, if you had purple garments, you must be pretty wealthy. In fact, the word Phoenician derives from the ancient Greek word phonios, meaning purple. As trading and colonizing spread over the Mediterranean, Phoenicians and Greeks seemed to have split the sea in two. The Phoenicians sailed along and eventually dominated the southern shore, which is Africa, northern Africa, while the Greeks were active along the northern shores. Now another important trade route that developed was the Silk Road, and we sometimes in modern times talk about the modern Silk Road. Now the Silk Road was the most enduring trade route in human history, being used for about 1500 years, and its name is taken from the prized Chinese textiles that flowed from Asia to the Middle East and Europe, although many other commodities were traded along the route. Then after that period, and coming to dominance from the Phoenician and the Greeks, was the Roman Empire, completely encircling the Mediterranean Sea and it's in the period of the 1st century BC to the 4th century AD. Roman sailing vessels navigated the Mediterranean as well as the major rivers of the empire, and that included the Ebro, the Rhone, the Rhine, the Tiber, and the Nile. 
Transport by water was much preferred where possible, as moving commodities by land was much more difficult. There was also substantial trade between the Indian subcontinent and the Mediterranean. So let's move on now to the period in Europe referred to as the Middle Ages. This lasted from the 5th to the 15th century AD and it began with the fall of the Western Roman Empire and then in the 1400s this merged into the period known as the Renaissance and from a point of view of trade and transport the Age of Discovery. There are two individuals of significance during this period of the Middle Ages. Firstly Marco Polo and his travels from Venice through Central Asia to China and back in the period 1271 to 1295 AD. The second person is Zheng He. He was a Chinese mariner, explorer and diplomat and he was also a fleet admiral during China's early Ming Dynasty. He was in charge of the Ming treasured voyages. These were seven maritime expeditions by Ming China's treasure fleet between 1405 and 1433 and travelled from China down through the Spice Islands, through Southeast Asia, up through the Malacca Straits, over to what is now Sri Lanka, to the west coast of India, down to the Maldive Islands, over to Mogadishu and Mombasa in northwestern Africa, up to Aden and Mecca off the Red Sea, and Ormuz. So it was quite extensive, these trips by Zhang He. Also during the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644, was the development of the Grand Canal system in China. This enabled much more transport to be delivered by river and canal. Cargo was able to be carried on vessels on these canals. Let's now quickly go from the Middle Ages to the Age of Discovery and look at some of the early European maritime expeditions in the period 1492 to 1522. So we have Christopher Columbus going from Spain and discovering the Americas. You have John Cabot going from England to Northern America. Ferdinand Magellan, his ship, although he died in, in the process, did a circumnavigation of the world going from east to west down via South America. And you had Vasco da Gama discovering a lot of the Spice Islands, Southeast Asian islands. As a result of discoveries by the major European nations, you then had in the Americas, Spain, Italy, France, Britain, Germany, Portugal, Belgium, Russia and Holland creating colonies in those areas of North and South America. In Africa, there was colonies set up by Spain, Italy, France, Britain, Germany, Portugal and Belgium. Then in Asia, Southeast Asia, you had the British, Dutch, French, Portuguese, Spanish and Germans. So this was the age of European colonization in other parts of the world that had been discovered through those ocean journeys of exploration and discovery. So let's look at transport. Pre-industrial revolution, you had walking. Men and women could carry a certain amount of product. Horse riding, there was more that horses can carry. There was donkeys and asses. There were camels who could carry more than horses. Then there was horses and carts, and also barges pulled by horses. 
This is all pre-industrial revolution. And then you had the de development of vessels, both for passenger, but more importantly, for the trade point of view, of cargo. So you had dows in the 15th century, ships called carracks. In the 17th century, the development of galleons. And then in the 19th century, you had these clipper ships with very fast transit times because of the huge amount of sail that they could carry and develop that speed. So let's look at now going from the age of discovery into the industrial revolution. Well, actually there's four industrial revolutions. The first one, 1.0 we might call it, was in the late 18th to early 19th century, and we could call that mechanization. So the industrialization of cities and substitution of animal power, if you like, by the steam engine and mechanical production. Then in the late 19th century to mid 20th century, we had industrial revolution 2.0, mass production, and the development of industrial regions, economies of scale, and the development of electricity and division of labor. Then 3.0 was the second half of the 20th century, where there was automation and global production networks, and electronics and information technologies were developed and enhanced. Then we come to 4.0 of the industrial revolutions, the early 21st century, which is what we are now in. We have what is called robotization and global value chains. So the added value is by both cyber and physical systems. And that's where we arrive at today. So let's look at some of the developments that have occurred over that period. In the 18th and 19th centuries, we saw the mechanization of transport, as I said, by road, rail, and water. Trucks and trains replaced carts and wagons, and iron ships with steam engines replaced sailing ships of wood. And the 20th century saw the invention of motorized flight by aeroplanes. So we have now sea and air, road and rail transport and that means ships and planes and trucks and trains. Let's look at some of the key aspects of that. There was the development of seaports, and they were linked with the early stages of European expansion from the 16th to the 18th centuries, commonly known, as I said before, the Age of Exploration. They supported the early development of international trade through colonial empires, but were constrained by limited inland access. With globalization and containerization, seaports increased their importance as a support to international trade and global supply chains. Rivers and canals. The first stage of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th and early 19th centuries was linked with the development of canal systems with locks in Western Europe and North America, mainly to transport heavy goods. This permitted the development of rudimentary and constrained inland distribution systems, many of which are still used today. Railways. The second stage of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century was linked with the development and implementation of rail systems, enabling more flexible and high capacity inland transportation systems. Roads. 
the 20th century saw the rapid development of comprehensive road transportation systems such as national highway systems and of automobile and heavy haulage vehicle manufacturing. Airways and information technologies. The second half of the 20th century saw the development of global air and telecommunication networks in conjunction with economic globalisation. This saw the rapid development of logistics and supply chain management. Although maritime transportation is the physical linchpin of globalisation, air transportation and information technology support the speedy delivery of specialised cargoes. One of the important factors in any business, but particularly in international trade and transport, is the costs involved and what that does to the pricing of products. So I want to talk about the four T's of international trade, and they are transaction costs, transport costs, time costs, and tariff and non-tariff costs. Now it's really the first three that I want to talk about today because they have been reduced dramatically over the last 50 years that I've been involved in international trade and transport myself. I've already talked about transport to some degree, but now I want to go to a very important part of it, and the concept is unitisation, and it's had a dramatic effect on the efficiency and reduction of costs in international trade and transport. So unitisation, there's two aspects that I want to talk about. One is pallets and the other is freight containers. And these apply to both air, sea, road and rail. Pallets are a base often made hardwood, softwood, steel, plastic or even fibreboard depending on the voyage, the type of safety required and reusability. Now these pallets are the base where other packages can be stowed on and secured and these can be loaded onto trucks and trains, ships and planes and they can also be loaded into containers, freight containers. So let's talk about freight containers now. Firstly let's look at freight containers for ships, trucks and trains. And we'll talk about air freight a little later. Now container ships will carry most of what importers and exporters of general goods and products require. Yes, there's other types of imports and exports. Uh, there's roll-on, roll-off vessels that can carry cars and heavy equipment and trucks and big stuff. There's also bulk carriers for ores like iron ore or coal. And there's tankers for liquids and gases. The majority of general purpose cargo for goods and products that we would buy and sell, particularly through stores and online trading, are contained in containers. And the container ships have superseded general cargo vessels. And they came into being around the 1950s. And the first container ship, the Encounter Bay, came into Sydney Harbour in March 1969. That was the first ship that came into Australia as a container ship. And now we have majority of general cargo being carried on container ships. There's two internationally accepted sizes of length, 20 foot containers and 40 foot containers. Now they're always eight foot wide, but a 20 foot container is 20 foot long and it's called a 20 foot equivalent. So there are 40 foot containers as well, and they would take up the space of two 20-foot equivalents. 
So the capacity of a ship is measured in TEUs. So they're generally eight foot high. High containers can be eight foot six and there may be others. Standard size is 20 by eight by eight or 40 by eight by eight. So that means that trucks and trains, as well as ships, have the infrastructure to carry these 20 foot and 40 foot length containers. Now, what sort of containers are there? The dry containers is the majority of cargo would go in those. There's tank containers for liquids and gases. They have the same dimensions, but there's a cylindrical tank that carries those things within that framework of a 20 foot container. There's a refrigerator containers to take cool, cold and frozen goods and keep them at a standard temperature throughout that journey. There's open top containers where goods can be lowered into that container. There's bolsters, which is basically the base of a container without any walls on the side and things can be lashed onto that. And because of the nature of that, they would have to be on the top of a stack of containers. And then there's flat racks. There's others as well, but they're the main ones. So containers are intermodal in nature. That is, they can be transported, as I said before, by rail, truck and ship with equal ease. They're handled by cranes, both gantry and mobile cranes, as well as purpose-built forklifts that can lift those 20-foot and 40-foot containers. That brings us now to air freight. The size of 20-foot containers and 40-foot containers in their various modes will not work for air freight. Air freight has their own unitization. They have unit load devices called ULDs, unit load devices, and they are both pallets specially designed for air freight and containers used to safely transport freight in aircraft. Lightweight metals, particularly aluminium, are used in their construction and they allow a large volume of cargo to be bundled into a single unit and then loaded in and out of those large aeroplanes. Now you may realize that I haven't gone into much detail here. However, the main takeaway is that unitization and containerization have positively impacted the first three T's of the four T's of international trade. That is, they have reduced the transaction costs, the transportation costs, and the time costs of international trade. One of the main issues for both exporters and importers can be storage and distribution. For the importer, particularly when you're starting out, one of the first questions considered is where do I store the products when they arrive? At home, in the garage, and leave the car outside? Or maybe move the kids into bunks and use their bedroom for storage? The answer I would give over the last 20 years or so was the alternative of a fulfillment company. They would be a warehouse and they would store their goods there and that warehouse would then pick, pack and deliver the goods as the orders come in. Now fast forward, we have FBA. Remember at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that in this episode, I was going to share what may be one of the most significant opportunities right now for small business importers and exporters for the marketing, sales and distribution of your products worldwide. And it's summarized in three words and the FBA stands for Fulfillment by Amazon. You might have guessed it already. 
So Fulfillment by Amazon launched in Australia in February 2018. The service operates by allowing businesses to send their products that they wish to ship through FBA to Amazon's Fulfillment Centre. When a customer places an order, Amazon will pick, pack and ship the products on behalf of the business and the service also handles customer returns. Now, we could be talking about importing here into Australia, but this service could also be considered by exporters as well, exporting to Amazon centres in the following countries. It doesn't matter where you are, Amazon has separate retail websites and fulfilment centres for the United States, the United Kingdom and Ireland, France, Canada, Germany, Italy, Spain, the Netherlands, Australia, Brazil, Japan, China, India and Mexico. Now that is huge. It's amazing. And there's companies that are now promoting Amazon fulfillment and they're charging a lot of money to train you how to do it. Now I'm not going to recommend anyone you should do your own diligence wherever you are in the world. But you should think about this very seriously. If you are an exporter and you've been thinking about how do I distribute my product in overseas, and we're talking here mainly for consumer products, but it could also be products that could be sold to businesses that would buy off Amazon. So something to think about here. And so what I would suggest you do, if you're interested, Google Fulfillment by Amazon. Okay, Fulfillment by Amazon, and that will take you to the Amazon sites and other people that are talking about it online. Now, you might be thinking, well, Amazon's a juggernaut, and it is, and when it launched in Australia, many of the large companies in Australia were really concerned and probably are still concerned. But for the small business, it's a great opportunity to leverage the Amazon infrastructure, both online and their distribution system, to carry your product and help you market it. So worthwhile considering. So that ends the good part of this episode. Let's go to the bad and I won't prolong it, but you really need to pay more attention to this and the ugly section than the first part. Let's discover why. Reality check, 80% of businesses fail within their first five years. Now this comes from a book, The E-Myth Revisited, Why Most Small Businesses Don't Work and What to Do About It by Michael E. Gerber. And it was published in 1995. And these figures came from the USA Department of Commerce. In the introduction to The E-Myth Revisited, here are some sentences. Businesses start and fail in the United States at an increasing, staggering rate. Remember, this is 1995. Every year, over a million people in this country start a business of some sort. Statistics tell us that by the end of the first year, at least 40% of them will be out of business. Within five years, more than 80% will have failed. And then, 80% of the small businesses that survive the first five years will fail in the second five. 80% of businesses fail within their first five years. That is 80% of all business in the USA or Australia, or if you're not in those two countries, then your country. It's probably an average percentage that would relate to your country. Now that's all businesses in a particular country. But what about an importing or exporting business. 
Now I asked this question in my classes in the past, is an import-export business more likely to fail than a domestic business? What do you think? What are the type of additional risks that would be involved in an import or export business? And people come up with a number of things that they think might impact an import-export business that may not impact a domestic business. One is red tape through government agencies involved in either the export or the import of the goods. There might be legal situations that may vary between countries that may impact a business. Fraud, it's easy to have fraudulent transactions and it's hard to keep on top of them when you're at a distance. And the other part about distance is the traveling time. The actual distance to be covered is gonna be more costly because of freight costs, whether it's by road, rail, air, or sea. There's communication problems that can occur. Even if you're speaking English, what we say in Australia may be misconstrued in the United States, as an example. There are issues about fluctuation in currencies. Quarantine could impact a shipment where there's animal or plant materials in that shipment. In international trade, you need to learn to love your documents because getting documents right is critical when you're dealing with banks, when you're dealing with customs, quarantine, health departments or any other department in a country that has an interest in the import or export of cargo. There's customs duties and taxes. There's banned goods, prohibited goods, prohibited to import, prohibited to export, and different countries have different rules. Often they're similar to your own country, but they could be different. So there's some of the issues that can actually impact an import-export business. So here's some examples that I've had issues with. Now, in 2005, I was involved as an industry facilitator with the education of importers and exporters around the country about a new customs process coming in, a new computer system, a new way of doing things. And it was called Cargo Management Reengineering. And as we went round and we discussed what was going, we could see some real challenges coming up. It was delayed, but it had to be done because under government legislation, it had to be done by this certain date. And it was October 2005. If you think about it, that's just before Christmas. People try to import their goods before Christmas to stock up ready for the Christmas rush. And things went wrong. Computer systems went wrong. Time taken to process things went from a few seconds to sometimes hours or days. The whole system ground to a halt, the electronic system and things were stuck on walls. There was delays. They even thought about shutting Sydney Harbour down because of the delays. They couldn't accept any more containers sticking up on the walls. They couldn't be cleared off the walls because the custom systems weren't working. So that's a government policy with a new system coming in that created all these issues. The second one is a company that was a client of mine. They made photo frames imported from a number of supplies from a number of countries. Frames were made of plastic, metal and wood. They decided to make their own wooden photo frames in a factory in China, their own factory in China. So they set up their own factory and the first shipment we received, received a random quarantine inspection. Quarantine people in Sydney said, we want to have a look at these goods. So we had to get that container, have it 
shipped to a place inspected by quarantine. They looked inside the doors, they opened up a carton or two, they looked at some of the frames, so they were enclosed in a shrunk wrap PVC sleeve. Quarantine looked at the documents and said there was a fumigation certificate there for methyl bromide treatment. Unfortunately, methyl bromide doesn't permeate PVC and so that the cargo had to be shipped to an outside fumigator and the process to be carried out was using ethylene oxide and that required the goods to be taken out of the container, put into a chamber, which was only a fairly small chamber, so to empty a 20-foot container, it took about three or four goes to get that fumigated, and then released, inspected again, and then once it was cleared, it could be picked up and delivered to my client. That cost thousands of dollars and delayed it for about a week. So that was a real bad transaction. There was a cost there. The next one was a textile factory in Sydney that used to be my client and they received containers of yarn in this particular shipment from Korea with no original bill of lading. The bill of lading is the document you need to surrender, pay any charges to collect the cargo. They didn't have the bill of lading. It didn't come through the bank. We chased it for all methods and we finally had to get a letter of indemnity signed by the bank which meant that the bank had to organise a loan for the same amount of value of that cargo, which was about $40,000, and charge a fee and interest until they got that original bill of lading. So it's quite a complex procedure. We got it done, but it cost a lot of money. For another client, we had incorrect paperwork, and that held up the clearance at the wharf, and the storage of 20 containers on the wharf in Sydney were $15,000. The time delay, and the cost there. So these are examples of some bad situations. Another one is currency fluctuation. My wife Sandy and I traveled to Italy and did a Mediterranean cruise in the year 2008. We were away for four weeks. When I left Australia, the Australian dollar to the US dollar was just under par, it was probably about 95 cents, something like that. When I came back, it was down to 63 cents. I rang a client of mine that I'd been assisting in getting approval to get some goods into Fiji, the island of Fiji. When I called the gentleman, he said nothing had happened, no progress. But he said I really had a problem. He'd ordered a machine to manufacture his product from the USA. When he went to pay for the goods, let's say it was around about 30,000 US dollars. And let's say to pay for that in Australian dollars, and I'm just guessing this off the top of my head, was like 33,000 Australian dollars to pay for 30,000 US dollars. What happened with that exchange fluctuation from 95 down to 63 cents Australian dollars to the US dollar, the price went up to let's say $45,000 and he didn't have that money and he couldn't buy it and he had to default on the order. And so that's another example where fluctuation in currencies can impact you dramatically. There are ways you can minimise that cost and reduce the risk there, but that's for a later time. So there's some of the bad. Now we go from the bad 
to the ugly. A volcano in Iceland sent up a plume of ash and steam across the North Atlantic in mid-April 2010, prompting authorities in the United Kingdom, Ireland, France and Scandinavia to close airspace over those countries. There were freight market disruptions because those planes that carried passengers also in the belly of the aircraft was carrying cargo. Many supply chains of high added value goods were disrupted, including electronic car parts and fresh produce, parcel deliveries on which many businesses depend for their management and transactions were also seriously disrupted. The impacts on value chains were particularly acute since air freight is geared toward the support of just-in-time strategies where inventory levels are kept low. The time lag between when the disruption occurs and when supply chains start to be impaired and shut down thus tends to be short. A good example concerns fresh flowers and produce industries in the developing countries like Africa, Latin America and the Middle East. Kenya, which exports a thousand tonnes of fresh flowers and produce per day by air transport, mostly to Europe, saw a complete stop of its production and a lot of it going to waste because there was a lack of cold storage facilities and a short shelf life. Imagine if you're one of those companies, the impact on your business, if you can actually survive it. Here's another one by Sea Freight. During the early hours of 14th of December 2002, the motor vessel Tricolor, a roll-on, roll-off ship, was sailing from Zeebrook, Belgium, to Southampton in the United Kingdom, and it collided in the English Channel with a Kariba, a 1982 Bahamian-flagged container ship. Kariba was able to continue on, but the Tricolor sank and required salvage by wreck-cutting. No casualties occurred, but here's the thing. The sinking occurred off Dunkirk Harbour, which is France's most northerly seaport, and France's third largest port after Marseille and Le Havre. 2,871 new cars, mostly from premium German and Swedish manufacturers, including BMW, Volvo and Saab. They were removed from the wreck and recycled for the metal component. In other words, a total write-off. So things can happen, even to the best of us. Recently, in Australia, off the New South Wales coast where I live, a cargo ship lost 83 containers overboard during heavy seas off the coast and items including nappies and sanitary pads were washed up onto the beaches. There were fears that ill-fated containers will pose a hazard for shipping and whales. This one you'll probably be aware of. At 9.45am Eastern Standard Time USA, an hour after the first hijacked plane collided with the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York, a complete closure of the North American airspace was ordered. This was the first time in history that the American as well as the Canadian airspaces were totally closed. Domestic flights were ordered to land at the nearest airport. However, this created difficulties for inbound international flights. At that time, the first westbound transatlantic flights were starting to enter the Canadian and American airspaces and could not head back to Europe because they were lacking enough fuel to do so. About 235 international flights thus landed in Canada. The airspace was reopened on September 13. So this was September 11, and it took two days for that to open up again. If you were having goods on those flights, let alone the passengers, your cargo will have been hampered dramatically time-wise. 
So, this brings us to the end of the second episode, the good, the bad, and the ugly of import-export. To summarize, the good. We are living in the most advanced time ever of international trade, importing and exporting, with extremely efficient and cost-effective methods of transport, communications, and technology. That being said, the reality is that many who enter this field are doomed to failure. Why? Because they do not research, plan and implement strategies, processes and systems to mitigate the risk and set themselves up for success. Future episodes of the Import Export Made Easy podcast will assist you to be more likely to succeed in this area with the information that you'll gain as long as you seek how best to implement it. Look at it this way, would you prefer to be in the 80% of failures or the 20% of businesses that succeed in the first five years of operation? Of course you'd be wanting to be in the 20%. To that end, episode three is titled, Solving the Jigsaw Puzzle of Import-Export. I hope you'll join me. Before I sign off, I want to leave you with this quote from Abraham Lincoln. Give me six hours to chop down a tree and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. I'll say that again. Give me six hours to chop down a tree and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. Well, that's it for now. I'm Lance Schooler, the Savvy Navigator, and I'm navigating the future. How about you? Go well, keep smiling, and Godspeed.